0: if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 2. And uh, if you're here this morning and you need a Bible, just raise your hands and uh, we'll see if we can't get someone to bring you uh, a Bible this morning. Anybody need a Bible? Okay, see uh, over on the end there. Excellent. Uh, Raise your hands, keep them up. Anybody else in need of a Bible? Great. Okay. Isaiah chapter 2, as we resume our study of this great book. Let me ask you a question. Who, or what, would you say is the church's greatest enemy? Who, or what, would you say is the church's greatest enemy? We hear a lot about enemies these days. You turn on the news and you won't be five minutes into a segment and you will hear, as we prayed a moment ago, about wars and rumors of wars and about the proliferation of weapons and the development of weapons. And it seems that the world is sort of caught up with this notion that there are enemies on every hand. But, beloved, our greatest enemy is not Kim Jong-un. Our greatest enemy is not Vladimir Putin. Our enemy isn't Robert Mugabe. Our greatest enemy is not the Ku Klux Klan or some white supremacist. Our greatest enemy is not someone appearing on a nightly news or even someone making threats on the block. While all those dangers are real, our greatest enemy is within. Our greatest enemy is sin. And our greatest sin is Pride. In fact, pride is the most soul-destroying sin the church faces. If left unchecked and unrepented, pride would destroy all of us. That's really the lesson of Isaiah 2. In Isaiah 1, the prophet Isaiah went to Judah and Jerusalem, and he spoke to them a message about their injustice toward one another. And about God's displeasure with them and his displeasure with their worship because they were living such unjust lives to one another. In Isaiah 2, the prophet continues speaking to Judah and Jerusalem. But this time, he focuses not on sins that they commit against each other. But he focuses on the inward sin being committed against God. Pride. As I thought about the text this morning, Uh, two other well-known passages of Scripture just kept coming to mind, and they are for us this morning the the outline for our sermons. So we're going to think about Isaiah 2, and we want to sort of meditate on two points. Number one, pride goes before fall, before destruction. Pride goes before destruction. That's actually what we'll see in verses 6 to 22. And then number two, God opposes the proud, but what? Gives grace to the humble. Gives grace to the humble. That's what we see in verses 1 to 5, which we'll consider second in the sermon. Pride goes before a fall. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This, I think, is the point of Isaiah 2. Look with me, beginning in verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come! Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no... Horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplift, uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone. Will be exalted in that day, and the idols shall utterly pass away, and the people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? The first point, pride goes before fall. That's what the writer in Proverbs says in Proverbs 16 and 18. And that's what we see illustrated for us in verses 6 to 22. In other words, there's a direct relationship between man's pride and man's downfall. And sometimes the destruction seems like it's just a matter of of natural consequences. You know, we say things like, he got too big for his britches, right? She got too high on herself and others brought her down a peg. But truthfully, the proud fall into destruction because God judges them. Verses 6 to 11, notice there, they all occur, most of the verses occur in the present tense. These verses describe the current pride of Judah and Jerusalem. But in verses 12 to 21, there's a switch in tense, and and the verses all refer to to a future day. They refer to what Isaiah in verse 2 calls the latter days. So, what we see when we put these two sections together is precisely that order. The pride that is there now in Judah and Jerusalem, followed by the destruction of God's judgment. Let's take a look at Judah's pride in verses 6 to 11. Isaiah describes it by telling us, or telling them, what they are full of, right? That's one of those colloquialisms we have for pride ourselves. We say they're full of something or they're full of themselves. And, and that's what pride does. It, it puffs us up. It swells us up. So it's appropriate that Isaiah puts his charges in the form of things that they are filled with. They are, notice in verse 6, they are full of things from the east. In other words, Judah and Jerusalem are, are looking to other countries for, for their culture and for their religion and for their security. They seek, notice there, fortune tellers, even though God sends them prophets. They strike hands or make a deal with foreigners even though God is to be their shield and their reward. And as a consequence the holy culture that God's people are meant to have is supplanted by a worldly culture and a God-denying culture which God's people are meant to avoid. They are filled with things from the east. But notice verse 7, they are filled with silver and gold. Judah and Jerusalem have all the material wealth that they could ever want. The the economy is booming. Unemployment is at an all-time low. New housing starts are up. The Jerusalem Stock Exchange is is doing quite well. Verse 7 says, there's no end to their treasures. You see, they're filled with treasures, and that material wealth has a hold on their heart. It's their money that they trust. Notice in verse 7, also, their land is filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. Horses and chariots were measures of military strength. A country with a lot of horses and a lot of chariots could outmaneuver their enemies They could take their spearmen across land at at rapid speed and pace and strike fast. Here's a picture of what Judah and Jerusalem are doing. They're building a great military army. They see themselves as a world superpower and it's their army that they trust rather than God who fights their battles. Verse 8, their land is filled with idols. You see, beloved, they're so cosmopolitan and so self-reliant. They turn to gods that they make with their own hands. They bow down to statues and and figures that that they actually carved. And notice the land is filled with such idols. Almost every person makes their own god. Almost every person, as a consequence, has lost their mind. Listen, beloved, if you can make the thing with your own fingers... If you can make a God that comes from your imagination, then by definition, it is not God. The things you create cannot be your creator. Someone once said that God made man in his own image and likeness and men have been returning to favor ever since. Spurgeon says the heart is an idol factory. And Israel's factory is at full churn, pumping out idols, worshiping things that are not God, as though they were God. It's striking how easily man is satisfied, not with God himself, but by a God he makes himself. So, they have good international relations, they have a booming economy, they've got a strong military, they have a country that is, is pluralistic, they're proud, but God is angry. Beloved, the church must be careful today, too. The church today is tempted to trust these same, these same things. God and country religion fills many of our country's churches. We, we think God must be pleased with us if, if Wall Street does well, if, if other countries like us, if we have the biggest military and religious freedom, at least for ourselves. God's people can be filled with all of that and not be filled with God. That's Israel's problem. And beloved, it's interesting. Sometimes our pride is revealed in what we trust. Who and what we trust is often a pointer to some area of self-reliance and pride. So we should look at Israel here and pause to ask ourselves, who or what are we trusting for religious guidance Do we seek guidance from God and His Word or from secular sources and materials, from things from the East? Who or what are we trusting for material provision? I mean, do we live as if our financial lives depend upon our employers or our businesses? As if our money is our God? Or do we look to God as our provider in whom we trust? Right now we're all carrying irony in our pockets because on our currency is stamped the phrase, in God we trust. But truthfully, in this country, a great many put their trust in their money rather than God. Who are we trusting for security and safety? Are we proud to be a military superpower and do we think we must remain one no matter what so we can be safe? Or are we trusting that God is our protector? And to him, all the armies of the earth are ants and dust. Who or what are we trusting individually? Who and what are we trusting as a church? Notice, they proudly trust everything but God. And for that comes their fall. see that described in verses 12 to to 21. Verse 12 again shifts our attention to the future. Isaiah writes there, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. This is what Isaiah means in verse 6 when he writes, For you, speaking of God, have rejected your people, the house of Jacob. Frightening words those are. Israel didn't see the rejection then, but on that day, that final day, that, that rejection will be plain and it'll be painful. Notice in verse 13, their trust in their natural resources will be brought low. The cedars of Lebanon and the oaks of Bashan were, were known in the ancient world for their, for their quality and their beauty. These, these trees were sought around the world, including in Israel. Notice there, Isaiah says they were lofty and lifted up. People took pride in, in this natural resource. but God will bring it down in judgment. Well, notice in verse 14, their trust in other gods will be brought low. God comes against all the lofty mountains and against all the uplifted hills. The hills and mountains and, and high places in the Old Testament were the sites of religious worship and pagan idolatry. It's where the people committed their, their, their false worship with the, the gods of their own making. And here the text says God will bring such high places down. In fact, verse 18, notice, tells us, and the idols shall utterly pass away. And again in verse 20, in that day mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats a picture here of the one true God who will stamp out every false God that steals His glory. And to their shame, they will finally throw these things away. And notice verse, six, verse 15. Their trust in their military will be brought low. You see that reference to high towers and fortified walls? Those were the, the lines of defense in, a, in an ancient city. You see, the military imagery has shifted from the horses and chariots, which are offensive weapons earlier in the chapter, now to defensive weapons, walls and towers. They are, they're on the run. Their, their, their military has let them down. The thing that they have trusted in terms of human strength does not, does not prevail in the day of God's judgment. They're looking for walls to hide behind because God now has come against them. Beloved, there are no weapons strong enough to replace God in our trust, and their walls high enough to protect us from God in His judgment. Verse 16 Their trust in their commerce and their craftsmanship has brought low too. The ships of Tarshish were renowned, were masterfully crafted. They were the envy of the ancient world. They were as beautiful as they were dangerous, but but God will destroy the works of man's hands in his judgment. You see, but all that time, Israel was proud of themselves but not pleased with God. And so pride is shown not only in what we trust, beloved, pride is also shown in what or who we boast in in what pleases us. See, all the sources of their boasting, God says, I'm bringing it low. I'm tearing it down. Their pride was simply the high point before their fall. The the higher our pride takes us, the lower and harder will be our fall. Look how hard the people of God fell in that day. Verse 6, for you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob. Verse 9, so man is humbled and each one is brought low and the prophet says there do not forgive them. Verses 11 and 17. You see the same words repeated. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. It's just as the words we read in our call to worship and Luke put it. If we're going to worship God then then the the exalted will be humbled and the humble who worship God will be lifted up. It will be this exchange. God will always be on top. Man, his creature will always be below. And those who refuse that, look at their reaction in verse 10. Isaiah tells them, you might as well enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. You see the same thing in verse 21. Verse 21. Verse 19, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. One can't help but think of Moses begging to see the glory of God and God saying no man can see my glory and live and hiding him in the cleft of the rock And allowing Moses to see the hind parts of his glory as he passes over. Here now is the reverse. God coming in his majesty, in his glory, in his infinite holiness, in his righteous anger, in his judgment, back to his people. They are cleft in that rock or in the cleft of that rock. And yet, they're seeing the full frontal fury of his holiness. The rocks cannot protect them. The caves cannot hide them. They will cry out for the rocks to fall on them and for the earth to swallow them in that terrible day of God's judgment when there will be no place to run, no place to hide. This is the future of the proud. And the question becomes, are you and I proud? Are we too proud to trust in God and nothing else? And do we realize that God hates pride? Amos chapter 6, verse 8, the prophet says there, God speaking through the prophet says, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. And I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. God with a holy hatred, he abhors the pride of men and the tendency of men to trust anything but him and to therefore have anything else as God but him. And if we continue in our pride, beloved, there's only shame and judgment ahead of us. And so we hear the the words of verse 22, such a fitting conclusion to the chapter. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath for of what account is he? What a great question. What a great question for people who are all tempted to think too much of themselves. Too highly of ourselves. Including here in this text God's people. He says, you, you've been thinking about the, the treasures of men. You've been thinking about the economies of men. You, you've been focused on the, on the weaponry of men and the armies of men. You've been, you've been sort of basking at what man makes with his own hands. Don't you know that man is simply dust with breath? And something whose life depends on something as flimsy and immaterial as breath is not to be trusted as your God. Doesn't matter whether you're the man depending on yourself or or someone else is the man that we're depending upon. Stop regarding man. Do not fear man. Do not put your trust in man. Do not depend upon man to be your savior. Every man will have to give an account to God. Depend upon God. Trust in God. Look to him alone. it's God that we have to be saved from. And so it must be God who saves us, who delivers us from his judgment which comes against the world for its pride. Think about it. On the day of judgment, beloved, if you're here and you're not a Christian, would you rather be found trusting yourself or some other person or trusting in God alone? To rescue you from judgment. Where should you put your trust? Is there really any choice? Pride goes before a fall. Point number two, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's quoted a couple times in the New Testament, James chapter 4 verse 6. 1 Peter 5 verse 5, they are quoting from the the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Proverbs 3 verse 34, which reads this, Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. It's God's grace or favor to the humble that makes all the difference between men on the day of judgment. Grace to the humble is what we see in the beginning of Isaiah's vision in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Isaiah, again, has his eyes, or his prophetic eyes, on the latter days. In those days, Isaiah sees a vision of four things. Number one, he sees a vision of God's house. See there in the middle of verse 2? The mountains, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills we said before, the mountains, the hills, the high places were the places of religious worship. The mountain of the Lord refers to Jerusalem. But, factually, Jerusalem is not the highest point in that part of the world. Mount Hebron, for example, would, would be larger than, than this mountain, and, and so would some other peaks. So when Isaiah sees the the mountain of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, he doesn't mean the mountain will actually grow physically. He means the worship of God, the God of Israel, will eclipse and outgrow the worship of idols on all the other hills. God will be exalted and the idols will be nothing. So Isaiah sees this vision of God's house. But number two, he sees a vision of God's people. See that there at the end of verse 2 and into verse 3? And all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Some years ago Chris and I had the privilege of going to um, Israel and Touring, leading a tour of Israel and uh, going all of the sites out in the countryside, Old Testament sites and coming on the final few days into Jerusalem and coming up that hill and, and seeing the, the dome and the, and the Temple Mount and it's a breathtaking scene. And, and walking the, the places where our, our Lord walked and, and of course we weren't the only tourists there, there were lots of tourists there and it was striking to us how many folks were there for stones and bones. And it was religious tourism. All right? This is not a picture of religious tourism. This is a picture of religious revival. And they're not going there as junior archaeologists. They're not going there to spend a nice vacation. Notice what they say. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Let us, let us go up to the Lord himself. And notice that he may teach us his ways, and we may walk in them. These folks are joyfully serious. They want the word of God. They they want to learn, notice, not from the priest, not from the rabbis, not from the pastor, but that God would teach them his ways. Isaiah sees a day where the great preacher himself, God, will teach people his word. He says it a little bit later, Isaiah 54 verse 13, he says, all your children shall be taught by the Lord. And isn't this at the heart of the new covenant promise? You may be thinking of Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 and 34. If you, if you like, you can turn there, but hear what the word of God says. Jeremiah, uh, God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the latter days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 34, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The New Testament tells us that this new covenant and this new knowledge of God began when the Son of God took upon Himself our human flesh and entered this world. That the the, the beginning of the latter days begins with the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And so all the apostles understood that they were, in fact, living in the latter days. And we are living in the latter days that Isaiah foresees in Isaiah chapter 2. The latter days where God is our teacher. And all of us are taught by him. All of us who believe in him and trust in him have his word inscribed not on tables of stone but on the table of our heart. And we have been married to God. He will be our God and we will be his people. And we really have no need to look to others to teach us, though God is kind to give us human teachers. But the real teaching The real instructing that's happening is happening by God himself through his spirit as he blesses his word to our hearts. We're taught finally of God. This is how Jesus understood his own life and ministry. John chapter 12 verse 13. You remember that scene where Jesus is washing the disciples' feet and and puts the towel around his waist and and does that, 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 that marvelous act of humility, the creator of the universe bowing to the feet of his creatures and taking on a lowly servant's task. You remember what he says to them? The text says there, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right, for so I am. He was saying more than they comprehended at that moment. He was the very God who came into the world to teach and instruct his people. More clearly perhaps, Matthew 23 verses 9 and 10 Jesus says there, call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven. Then he says this, verse 10 neither be called instructors for you have one instructor the Christ. Jesus is that Christ is that God who instructs and teaches us just as Isaiah prophesied. So when Isaiah saw the vision, beloved, I want you to bring this home. He saw us. He saw us on whom the end of the ages has come. He said, all of the nationalities in this room and in churches around this country and in churches around the world worshiping the God of Israel. He saw a day when in Anacostia, Anacostia would be filled with the knowledge of the Lord and filled with the word of the Lord. He, he saw Isaiah a day when mercy of Christ would be planted just northeast there. And he, he saw a day when a team of folks carrying God's word would go to Mombasa and, and make Jesus known to the, to the Muslims and, and the poor and everybody in between there in Mombasa. He saw a day when the church would be made up of every tribe and every language and every nation. And as Pastor Matt preached so wonderfully last week, would be one body in Christ. We live in that day that Isaiah saw. I hope that excites you, Christian. And I hope it excites you to lean into God's work all the more knowing that he is fulfilling in our lives what he promised centuries ago and what Christ has brought into the world. Isaiah saw a vision of God's house. He saw a vision of God's people. Number three, he saw a vision of the word, of God's word. See it there in verse three. All of this is happening for out of Zion shall go the law or the teaching and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You're capturing the picture so far? You might summarize it this way. As God goes up and the word goes out, the people come in. As God is exalted and the word is spread, the nations are gathered at the house of the Lord. Reminds you again of something that Jesus says, doesn't it? John 12, 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will what? draw all people to myself. On a hill called Calvary, Jesus was lifted up on a cross. And by that same cross, the Lord Jesus draws to himself all people in repentance and in faith, in worship, in love, and in obedience. This is why we preach the cross, This this is why Christians must never get away from Calvary and, and from the cross because that, beloved, is finally the hill that will be higher than every other hill. And that's the hill that the nations string to. Because that's where our Savior died as a ransom for our sins. And three days later was resurrected for our righteousness. Right here in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 2 and in so many other places, beloved, is the basis for our call to evangelism, the basis for our call to missions, the basis for our call of making disciples from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. If you're new to this church, that's our mission statement. We exist to glorify God by making disciples from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. And as we adopt that statement, we don't adopt it because we're being clever and original. No, no. We're plagiarizing and summarizing the vision in Isaiah 2 is the going out of the word to the four corners of the block and the four corners of the globe making for God a people who were no people. We simply intend to do what God said he would do and to enter that work with the joy of our Lord. This is God's agenda and so it must be our agenda. It must be the focus of our prayers and the, the hope attached to our giving and it must be the purpose to which we orient our lives as God goes up and his word goes out, his people come in. And Isaiah sees a fourth thing. A vision of God's rule. He sees God's house, he sees God's people, he sees God's word and here he sees finally God's Rule. If you want to reduce God's rule to one word, you could use, use the word peace. The Lord becomes judge between the nations, verse 4, and decides their disputes. Now you know every judgment, every ruling he gives will be accurate and right. It settles all dispute. And as a result, the nations turn all their weapons of war into tools for farming. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Notice there, it's as if God's rule returns mankind to Eden and returns man to his first job of subduing and cultivating the earth and spreading God's glory. There'll be no more grieving widows of of war veterans and no no more children robbed of their parents there be no more UN peacekeeping forces and no more need for pentagons. That's a noble, military service is a noble profession in our day, in our kingdom, but in God's kingdom every soldier will be retired to farming and every farmer will produce life and abundant crops For the blessing of God's people. Both terrorist groups and military superpowers will be a thing of the past when God rules his people. The peace of God will watch over the people of God forever. Beloved, this has begun. It's not yet finished. Christ has entered the world and do you remember what the angels announced in Luke chapter 2 verse 14? Glory to God in the highest and on earth. What? Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, has brought a real peace into the world. That peace will be growing in these last days until that final day when it will be complete and perfected and all creation will know is the peace of God. The invitation to peace occurs in the words of verse 5. You see it there? You can almost hear Isaiah pleading with great joy. Oh, house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That life in the light of the Lord is so good. It bids everyone, come, come enjoy this, come get a part of this, come delight in this, come experience this. Be a part of the exaltation of God and be a part of the spreading of his word. Come in with the throngs of the nations and enter under his rule and no peace for your soul. He says there, oh, come, come, house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And the question is this morning, if you're here and you you don't quite know what that means, the question is, what does that look like? What what does that mean? What, What is it to walk in the light of the Lord? Well, why don't we let the light himself tell us? If you like, turn with me to John chapter 12 again, verses 31-36 to 36. Jesus is speaking there of himself and his ministry and he explains who the light is and he explains how to begin to walk in that light. John chapter 12 verse 31 Jesus in words that bring to mind Isaiah 2 verses 6 to 22 says this, now is the judgment of this world God's judgment is real and it is come. Now will the rule of this world be cast out, referring to Satan. Verse 32, which we read earlier, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus says to them, notice, the light is among you for a little while. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, notice, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. Jesus is that light. He's the light that's broken into the darkness. He is the light that the darkness cannot comprehend or overcome. He's come into the world as light that we might have our darkness exposed. And he's come into the world not only to expose us to the darkness that we're in, but to call us into the light, which is him. And we enter into that light, he says here in verse 36, by believing in him. You put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your God and your Savior, who atones for your sins and brings you eternal life, and light will break out in your soul. Darkness will flee, and light will come. But he says here, while you have light, while you have time, while you have opportunity, even now in the preaching of God's word, light is coming to you. You, you are now experiencing the light of God's word and the, the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. While you have this light, believe. Don't, don't think about later. Don't put off for now what must be, or, or for later what must be done now. Come into the light. Walk in the light. Receive the light. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved and God will be your God and you will be his people and his peace will reign in your soul. Come into the light. But beloved John, who likes to write about the light so much, writes about it in another place too. He would, he would want us to be really in this light and not deceiving ourselves. So if you like, turn with me to his first letter. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. So John picks up that, that light imagery again and he, he, he wants to be sure. He wants us to know that we're in this light. And so he writes this word, these words. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. That God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say... We have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, notice, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. You see there, John says, believe in the light in John 12, and in 1 John 1 says, walk in the light. All the vision of Isaiah becomes yours through Christ when we believe in this light and walk in this light. When our fellowship is with God and with one another, and when his blood cleanses us of all of our sin and unrighteousness. And so the question becomes, I believe it's implied in Isaiah 2, Are we humble enough to repent of our sin? Are we humble enough to follow Jesus in faith? Beloved, only one thing leads people out of darkness to come to Jesus as their God and to live according to his word. And that one thing is humility. If we're not humble enough to admit that we are sinners, we will not come to Jesus. If if we're not humble enough to admit we don't know everything and need to be taught by God, we won't come to Jesus. If we're not humble enough to admit God is our creator and we are his creatures and we owe him everything, we won't come to Jesus. If we're not humble enough to admit we walk in darkness apart from Jesus, we will remain in that darkness and will not come to the light. And if we won't come, We remain in our pride, and God remains opposed to us. Are you humble enough to come to Jesus? Isaiah 66, verse 2 says this, God speaking through Isaiah, but this is the one to whom I will look. God is saying now, the one to whom I will look with favor and pleasure, he describes this way, He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Is that us, beloved? Is that you, friend? Are you humble? Are you contrite or broken in spirit about your sin? Do you tremble at the holy word of God? If you do take heart, the world says, those are bad things. Don't feel bad about yourself. Have a little self-esteem. You know, chin up. Keep calm. Carry on. God says, no, that's the one I'm looking for. That's the one I look for with pleasure and, and favor and grace. And I will give more grace to everyone who is humble and brokenhearted because of their sin and tremble at my word. That's the one that pleases me. That's the one I will say. Are we such ones. If we exalt ourselves, he will tear it down. We'll be like those fools at the Tower of Babel trying to build a tower all the way to heaven and God laughs and comes down and confuses the whole thing. But if we would lower ourselves before God, he will in his own time, in his own grace, exalt us to share with him in his love and his glory. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. The way up with God is down. If we will humble ourselves, He will in Christ exalt us. You see, beloved, God promises grace and exaltation to the humble. And The question again is, are we humble enough to come to Him and receive it? That grace is, and that exaltation in Christ that he plans for sinners who repent. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Beloved, let us not be proud. Let us be humble. Let us come to Jesus in repentance and faith and be a part of God's vision to save the whole world through him. If you have trusted Christ, Your future is glorious. If you have not yet, do so now. Humble yourself and live in the light. Let's pray together. Oh Father in heaven, we do confess that our pride is a sneaky thing. It shows up in places where we are least qualified to be proud in places where we might be pleased and we might give praise to you it shows up to, to bite off a little bit of glory for itself Our pride would make us stiff necked so that even when you give an invitation to come into the light and you promise grace to the humble we will sometimes stiffen our back Stiffen our neck. Raise high our heads and continue in high-handed sin. Forgive us, Lord. Break us of our pride. Please do it gently and do it effectively and do it in a lasting way, but do break us of our pride. And we do confess that if you should choose not to be gentle but to be rough because our grip or pride has been so strong. It would be better that you break our fingers and we come to you than that we remain with a strong grip clutching nothing. Oh God, you spoke to Israel and you speak to us. Sanctify your church. Make us zealous for your name. Grant that we would exalt you And we would send your word out and we would see our neighbors on the block and across the globe come streaming up the mountain of the Lord to learn from you and to live for you. Do this for your glory. Do it for our joy. Help us to be sure to give you all the praise and honor to take none for ourselves, but the delight to be servants of the most high God. Do it for your glory in Jesus name. Amen.